Joining us today on the Dialogos Radio and the Dialogos Interview Series is Associate Professor of Political Science at Duke University, Bahar Leventoglu, who will speak to us about political developments in Turkey at the present time, and in particular following the failed coup attempt of this past summer. Professor Leventoglu, thank you for joining us today. I thank you for having me. To get us started, give us a sense of the political climate in Turkey since the failed coup attempt this past summer. Has Turkish President Tayyip Erdogan emerged stronger as a result of the coup attempt in your view? Basically, the failed coup attempt has given Erdogan a unique opportunity to be even stronger than he used to be before the coup, before uh, July 15th, because this was a really serious uh, coup attempt. I mean, Turkey is not a stranger to coups. You know, we had a coup in 1960 and then in 1970, in 1980. Then we had some half coups, postmodern coups, where, for example, the military posted something on its website, intervening with the government business, etc. So we had a lot of experience with the military, you know, intervening with uh, civilian government, but never a military bombed the parliament ever or they never hunted to kill the president. So it was a really serious attempt to take over the democratically elected government, even though the government is popular like for half of the population and is really, really not popular for the other half of the population. The whole country you know, was so shocked about what happened and it really gave a unique opportunity to Erdogan to be even stronger than he used to be before the before the coup. What do you believe are the factors which account for the failure of the coup attempt? I believe the plan was pretty good. It was very well designed. And uh, I was in Turkey at the time. So I'm basically on Facebook. And some friend makes a post saying that there are soldiers on the bridges in Istanbul. And then people started making posts about, you know, F-16 planes flying over them. And I understand when they go really fast, they make a sound like a bomb sound. So people were really scared. So we turned on the TV. We didn't know what was happening. It was like 10 p.m. maybe and very close to midnight. And uh, before midnight, there was an announcement on the state-owned TV a woman came up and she read a declaration by a military junta saying that they're taking over the government. So we were like, and that there will be a curfew. So this is what the declaration said. But then close to midnight, uh, President Erdogan came on Turkish CNN and he basically used FaceTime on his iPhone to call people to go on the streets and protest against the coup. He was so smart. I mean, he used uh, social media very, very successfully. And people, I mean, his supporters mainly, uh, went on streets. Some people died, basically. The army, you know, shot at them and they died. I think 40 plus people died that night, civilians. And when we saw that it was starting to fail, the coup, I mean, I have to say, I have to admit, the first thought that came to us was that it was staged by Erdogan. Everyone thought, it was staged by Erdogan just to, you know, have his hand even stronger than it used to be. 
but then, of course, information uh, came, and what we learned was that there was a leak, an information leak at 4 p.m. that day from the military to the national intelligence saying that there will be a coup attempt at night. And I think that night was deliberately chosen because there would be a wedding of the daughter of one of the highest generals in the army. So most of the generals would be at that wedding. And it was a Friday night. And we, we knew nobody would make a coup at 10 p.m. You know, the coups always happen at 3 a.m., 4 a.m. when everyone is sleeping on a Saturday. I mean, that's like a rule. This one happened at 10 p.m. and it failed quickly. So everyone thought first... This could have been staged by Erdogan. But as the information came out that there was an information leak at 4 p.m. And so the the military, I mean, the factions of the military that was involved in the coup uh, had to move earlier than they thought they would. And this, this was one reason that it failed. What is the role of the Gulen movement in Turkish politics and what was its role in the coup attempt? the Gulen moment, there was an article in the New Yorker maybe two weeks ago. I think it was a very good article explaining the Gulen movement and its involvement in the coup. But what I loved the most was the title, 30-year coup. I mean, Gulen movement has been trying to take over the state, not just the government, but the state, because they always sneaked into bureaucracy. So, you know, judiciary, to national intelligence, to the NSF equivalent of Turkey, to education. So they always sneaked into bureaucracy, not to elected offices. So they really have been sneaking into state offices for the last 30 years to take over the state. And in fact, the incumbent party, the Justice and Development Party, uh, you know, Erdogan used to be the leader of that party and then he became president. So uh, he's not the head of the party anymore. But he, of course, I mean, he's controlling the party. This party, when it came to power in 2002, it's a grassroots movement, the uh, Justice and Development Party, but they, they didn't have the human capital. Most of the support came from uh, basically low educated, low income people. So they needed human capital. And this human capital was provided by the Gulen movement, who invested in human capital for more than 30 years. That movement started in early 1970s. And when I was in secondary school in 1980s, we knew which teachers belonged to that movement and they recruited people in front of our very eyes. They took them to Friday prayers, etc. And then when I went to college, because uh, my university was an elite university, I mean, I have to tell you, I mean, all my classmates, I mean, we were 50 people in the electrical engineering department at my university. I mean, all 50 people were from the first 200 250 in a national entrance examination, which 1 million people take every year. And we knew all the people that belonged to this organization, but we didn't know really what they wanted. But these people always recruited bright young guys who would be, you know, leaders, opinion leaders, or, you know, successful scholars, successful doctors, lawyers. So this, this is how basically they sneaked into state organizations and military, of course, I mean, one very important part of it. Now that information is coming out, we're also, I mean, uh, learning that they, for example, cheated on military entrance examinations. They did have people in the group that organized the exams and they basically let people that wouldn't be able to get into the military school 
get into the military school. I mean, there was a point only the Gulen people could get into the military school. I mean, the when you look at the demographics of the military, it's unbelievable the percentage of the people that belong to the movement that could get into the uh, military. That's just uh, unbelievable. And this movement, I don't think there is one other movement that we could give as an example of, in, of a, like a similar organization to the Gulen movement. I think it is unique and it is real. And it was, I don't think it is just the Gulen movement that, that did the coup, but I think they were an important chunk of the failed coup attempt. Now, who else do you believe was involved in a coup? I, I think some factions of the army that are against Erdogan, the secular factions. So, I mean, until now, all military coups were done by secular factions of the military. And I mean, until the 1990s, the military was always secular. In fact, the people that were believed to be religious were even kicked out of the army by showing other excuses by the secular establishment. So, I mean, the, the military is always a staunch supporter and a believer in Ataturk's principles, who is the founding father of Turkey and who basically brought in you know, a secularism as a you know, fundamental principle of the republic. And whenever they see a threat to secularism in Turkey, they intervene. They always did that in the past. But this time, it was uh, led by the Gulen movement factions in the army. But I also believe some generals that are not part of the Gulen movement, but dislike Erdogan and Justice and Development Party because they see a big threat to secularism and also joined the failed coup. And we don't know, maybe, I mean, I don't know, just speculation on my part. And I'm pretty sure we will find out a little bit later about if it is right. But some people from within the incumbent party may also know, if not, you know, necessarily actively involved in the coup, but some of them may have information about what was going on. But the thing is that, which is very important, you earlier asked about why it failed. I told you at 4 p.m. there was leak of information from the military to the National uh, Intelligence Agency about a coup coming that night. Uh, we don't know what happened between 4 p.m. and 10 p.m. We have no idea. Uh, and nobody's saying anything. I mean, the president says that he didn't know anything. He heard about the coup from his brother-in-law, which is amazing, which is not really uh, believable. Uh, what I believe is that between 4 and 10 p.m., there were negotiations. And I believe some of the generals turned and supported the constitutional government after all. What is the current status of all those who were detained after the failed coup attempt? Have legal proceedings begun against them? And will they be at risk of possibly facing the death penalty? So Turkey removed that penalty in late 1990s. So there is no death penalty. And even though they are uh, talking about uh, bringing it back uh, potentially, if you look at the law, they cannot really apply death penalty to these people if they you know, follow the constitution because the, the law applies the day of the crime. And when they you know, commit the crime and they try the coup against the government, there is no death penalty in the country. And even though if they change the law and bring that penalty back, it would not work backwards. So they cannot, you know, uh, bring capital punishment back. I think they only say that to provoke people. And you see crowds, uh, you know, shouting and Erdogan rallies saying that we want that penalty back. But it's just to 
provoke people. So I don't really think that that penalty will be back. Or it may be back, but I don't think it can be applied to these people that are being detained. Or, of course, I mean, if they don't want to follow the Constitution, they can't do anything. But I'm just talking within the framework of, you know, believing that the government will follow the constitutional system in the end. Uh, about their status, you know, they are being detained, but it's not uh, over yet. The, the, the problem is there is a systematic purge from the bureaucracy, mostly the, the military, the judicial system, educational system. You know, thousands of people uh, have been fired. Some have been detained. So there, there is a systematic purge. What we don't know is that if the government is really going after the people that they know or they have evidence on uh, that these people were part of the Gulen movement and were involved in the coup, or they're basically using this as an excuse to fire anyone that they basically dislike. So we just don't know about that. But I strongly suspect that this failed coup attempt, as I said before, has given Erdogan the upper hand so strongly. I mean, he's much stronger than he used to be right now. And he can use this as an excuse to purge anyone he dislikes, just saying that, okay, he's involved with the with the Gulen moment. And the other thing is that, is it enough to be a member of the organization, to be detained, to be imprisoned, or to be put on trial if you're not involved in the coup? These are all questions that are being discussed right now. We are on the air with Duke University Professor of Political Science, Bahar Leventoglu, here on the Galagos Radio and the Galagos Interview Series. You mentioned, of course, the purge that has taken place in the public sector. There has also been, from what I understand, a blanket ban implemented preventing Turkish academics from leaving the country. What is the status in general of all of these restrictions today? It was a very short ban, though. So uh, they basically banned academics to leave the country for uh, business just after the coup. But then, I mean, they removed the ban. So there is no restriction on academics to leave the country right now to go to conferences, etc. However, some academics have been fired from their jobs for their involvement with the Gulen organization. And then, of course, Gulen himself had universities in Turkey. Again, I mean, we could all name the universities that he owned, name by name, and all the universities have been closed down. And all the academics that were employed in these universities are all of a sudden jobless people. And you cannot believe, I mean, because I grew up in Turkey, now I'm living in the U.S., I've been living in the U.S. for the last 20 years, years, but I have close ties with my country. I know a lot of academic friends in the country, and you cannot see how many people, especially academics, are trying to leave the country because they, they know what's coming. I mean, there is no real I mean, restriction right now, but they feel, even though it's not in law, they feel the restriction. People are scared to talk right now because when you say something against the government, it's very easy, basically, to put the blame on you as being a Gulen, uh, you know, movement member and you can be detained. A anything can happen. So the people are scared. Have there been broader political changes in Turkey and in the uh, political landscape of the country following the events of last summer? No. I mean, in terms of constitution, of course, one of Erdogan's main goals is to change the constitutional system from a parliamentary system to presidential system. But since July 15, it's all about purging, basically. So there has been no broad discussion about constitutional government or 
anything like that. There has been no change, really. But there ha- a state of emergency has been declared in the country, which is a change, of course, and it has been extended for three more months. But I mean, I can say it, the state of emergency doesn't really affect the daily lives of people because I was there in summer just I mean, during the coup and a month after the coup. So you don't really feel the state of emergency in your daily life unless, I think, you are someone that is thought to be a member of Gulen organization. Recently, arrest warrants were issued against members of the HDP, the People's Democratic Party, which is one of Turkey's main opposition parties, and indeed the leaders of the HDP have been detained. Tell us about this government crackdown against the HDP. Yeah, and uh, it started, in fact, last weekend with the co-mayors of uh, Diyarbakir, the largest Kurdish majority city, in Tur- not only in the southeast, but in Turkey. Uh, they were arrested with alleged lang- links to the PKK. And yesterday, uh, as you said, the co-leaders of the pro-Kurdish political party, HDP, have been detained along with other members of parliament from the same party being under custody for having links to PKK, which the party denies. And we got news early this morning that now the co-leaders are arrested. Uh, and some of the members of parliament are also arrested. And some of them uh, have been set free, basically. And the government says, as I said, that they have links to PKK, but the party uh, denies it. Erdogan made sure to lift the immunity of members of parliament and the, with, the, with help from two opposition parties, the People's Republican uh, Party and Nationalist Action Party, earlier in uh, 2016. And I also told you his plan might be to put Kurdish members of parliament in jail, close down the Kurdish party, and then hold early elections. And again, remember, AKP always came second in the areas that HDP came first. So if they hold early elections with no HDP around or no Kurdish political party around, then they can get the number of seats they need, the supermajority in the parliament to change the constitutional system to a presidential system, which Erdogan uh, has been longing for a long, long time. There also seems to be a crackdown underway against certain media outlets in Turkey, with the shutdown of numerous Kurdish broadcast stations, and more recently, the takeover of the newspaper Tsumhuriyet and the arrests of the newspaper's editors. What is the status of press and media freedom in Turkey at this time? The thing is that Turkey has had a press freedom problem for a long time now. It's not just this year, for a couple of years. A big chunk of the problem is that most of the big media outlets in Turkey are branches of huge corporations uh, that are involved in other lines of business, say construction. And these corporations take huge government contracts. And so there is always conflict of interest there. Uh, Erdogan has been intervening uh, with the press for a long time now. He basically called media bosses to fire journalists and they complied with him. But now there is only a handful of opposition media outlets. Uh, Most of them are online publications. And Erdogan is now taking his crackdown on media to the next step. And as you say, uh, on Monday, the editor-in-chief of Cumhuriyet, one of the last remaining opposition dailies in the country, was detained and arrested, along with a number of managing staff, journalists and executives. And they are basically suspected of having connections to either Gulen or to PKK, but something that has to do with terror, according to uh, 
government officials. And we all know the president has held a grudge against Jumhuriyet for a long time now, maybe two years, when they broke the news about some alleged arms smuggling to Syrian rebels. They broke the news about the Syria-bound trucks carrying weapons to Syrian opposition, and Erdogan has held a grudge against Jumhuriyet for a long, long time. And after uh, this happened, then it was followed by Turkish authorities now shutting down Kurdish news outlets, including the only Kurdish language newspaper uh, in the country. So everyone that says anything against the government is now being shut down. There is no voice, you know, to oppose the government. And because there is state of emergency, the government rules by decree. And they are shutting up anyone that they please. We are on the air with Duke University Professor of Political Science, Bahar Leventoglu, here on the Dialogos Radio in the Dialogos interview series. And now, change of topics here. How is Turkey presently involved in a war in Syria? So, I, th- I think three different things happen at the same time. First, the Russian military involvement in Syria has grown, and the coalition forces, I mean the U.S. allies, have achieved to liberate a number of towns in Syria from the so-called Islamic State, ISIS, and Turkish army has been involved in the conflict against Islamic State. But Turkey has made clear that the goal is not just fighting ISIS, but also ensuring that Kurdish forces do not expand the territory under their control. And their involvement in the conflict, of course, rekindled relations with Russia that were not great after the jet scandal. You know, Russia shot one of the Turkish uh, jets over Syria. Turkey, we also see that toning down the rhetoric towards Assad because Erdogan for years has been staunchly against him being in power because basically Assad is supporting the Shiites in Syria and Erdogan supporting the Sunni opposition so that he wanted Assad to be out of power. But now we're seeing that Turkey is stepping down (laughs) in the rhetoric against Assad. They're softening, basically. So if you ask why Turkey is doing that, it is basically Turkey is freaking out about the possibility of a Kurdish state along Turkish border. It's And it's a much bigger threat than Assad himself. So, in fact, the possibility of a Kurdish state in Syrian territory may push Ankara and Damascus to have better relations. Erdogan basically acts right now on his belief that the biggest threat is, you know, the Iraqi and Syrian Kurdish militia coming together alongside the border. You know, Turkey has problems with its own Kurds. And the main threat for what what the government sees as the main threat is reunification of Iraqi and Syrian Kurdish populations in Syria and Iraq and the possibility of an independent Kurdish state over there. So now they're fighting ISIS because, I mean, Turkey wasn't fighting ISIS for a long time. Now they're fighting ISIS also to keep good relations with the U.S., but also keeping the Kurds at bay and also Turkey doesn't want the Kurds to be the closest U.S. ally because the Syrian Kurds especially has been uh, the most reliable uh, opposition and ally for opposition to Assad forces and ally to to the U.S. And it is the only maybe uh, secular (laughs) opposition um, in Syria. So it's, you know, multiple nations and multiple nations' interests and interests of also multiple sectarian groups in Syria. It's a huge mess. But yeah, Turkey is involved now in the fight against ISIS. But uh, the goal is not just to fight ISIS, but stop the possibility of an independent Kurdish state in the North Iraq, uh, Syria region, basically the border between Turkey and Iraq and Syria. 
And of course, the conflict with the Kurds in southeastern Turkey has been ongoing for over three decades now. Uh, what has been the history of this conflict? So, I mean, in the last couple of years, until the last parliamentary elections, Erdogan initiated a peace process with the Kurds for the first time in Turkish Republic history. Uh, negotiations started with the PKK, but then seeing that it's not popular. Basically, Erdogan, not, not just because it's not popular, but it's also that, okay, let me go, I'm going backwards because it's a big, bigger story than just Turks and Kurds having a conflict. So Erdogan wants to change the constitutional system from a parliamentary system to a presidential system. So he needs votes in the parliament to vote for that. He needs 366 votes because you need, you know, super majority to uh, amend the constitutional system. In the southeast of Turkey, it is the Kurdish political party that is trying to be a nationwide party, but it is still more regional than national. Uh, that is the first party in every district in uh, the southeast. And Erdogan's party comes second. And Erdogan wants all these votes. And you would say, I mean, if he is, you know, more sympathetic to the cause, etc., he may get more votes, but he doesn't basically choose to do that. He chooses to move more to the right, uh, to the nationalist agenda. And what he did was to, in fact, also get the support of other parliamentary parties in Turkey to remove the immunity of members of parliament, which was done towards the Kurdish parliamentarians. So he never talked about a plan, but most people basically believe that what he wanted to do is to remove the immunity of the Kurdish politicians and then close the Kurdish party, have parliamentary elections again. And if there was no Kurdish party in the southeast region, then AKP, the Justice and Development Party, would get all the seats over there. They will get 366 and will change the constitution. So it's sort of a conspiracy theory, um, you know, people talking about potential plans by Erdogan, but uh, it's possible. And in domestic politics, as I said, I mean, he moved to, to the right. He basically said he's done with the peace process altogether. So basically the armed struggle between PKK and the Turkish army started again. And that is the status quo we have right now. I mean, we... We basically have come far for the peace process for the last couple of years. And all of a sudden, Erdogan was like, OK, I'm done with it. I'm not playing with you anymore. I will try something else. And he basically did all this. So whatever he has done in the last year was against the Kurds. You mentioned the warming of relations between Turkey and Russia. What is the status of relations between Turkey and Israel and also between Turkey and the United States at the present time? It's interesting. Uh, you know, Turkey-Israel relations have gone bad after the Blue Marmara ship uh, event. I don't know if you are familiar with that. There was a ship going from Turkey to Palestine for humanitarian aid, but the Israeli armed forces got on the ship. I mean, Israel basically didn't want the ship to come, but the government sent the ship. And then Israeli armed forces came on the ship and someone died, etc. And the, basically the relations got really, really bad. But now, a couple months ago, Erdogan made peace with Israel. He even got angry with the people that brought the ship to Israel, saying that I was the prime minister at the time and nobody asked me about it. So he just 
denied that. I mean, he was the one that sent the ship to Palestine. So the relations with Israel is uh, good right now. And with Russia, we had the Turkey had the tension because of the jet event that the, a Turkish jet was shot by Russians uh, over, over Syria, for which Erdogan demanded an apology, etc. He was very, you know, hawkish. But then, uh, with all within the context of the uh, Syrian conflict, the relations with Russia has been uh, rekindled when Turkish army has been involved in the conflict against. The Islamic State and uh, Turkey for for a while now has been getting closer to Russia and China. I mean, Turkey has been a U.S. ally like forever. It's a NATO member, etc. But I think he, they want to have more, you know, bargaining power with showing the U.S. that they can. There are alternatives. To be allies. But Tur- Turkey has been a U.S. ally for a long time. Now, one tension with uh, a possible tension with the U.S. could also come from Fethullah Gülen himself. You know, this Gülen moment, I mean, he's basically living in the U.S. in Pennsylvania and Turkey wants the U.S. to give him back. And they sent the U.S., you know, boxes of evidence about him being involved in this coup. Uh, we, of course, don't know what kind of evidence Turkey is sending to the U.S. The U.S authorities said that they will, you know, examine the evidence, but it can take, you know, not just months, but years, you know, to go over the evidence and come to a conclusion. But Turkey is impatient to have uh, Fethullah Gülen back and put him on trial. So it is another potential point of attention with, uh, with the U.S. And another thing, of course, the relationship between the U.S. and the Kurds in Syria. As I said, the Syrian Kurds have been the most dependable, reliable opposition for the U.S. in the area. And Turkey doesn't want the Kurds and the U.S. have the best relations. In the past year, there has been an increasing incidence of terrorist attacks in Turkey, including a recent car bomb attack in southeastern Turkey with eight deaths, and previously a series of deadly attacks in Ankara and other cities. How is the Aragon government using these terrorist attacks as a pretext to rule by decree and to crack down on the media and the opposition? Uh, so state of emergency you know has been declared because of the failed coup attempt on July 15th but of course all these attacks in Ankara Istanbul and other places some of them PKK said it has been responsible for some of them it hasn't so we really don't know about uh, who is responsible for every attack because ISIS could also be responsible for some of the attacks around the country. So basically, as I told you earlier, Erdogan at some point started negotiations with the Kurds. But then again, he saw an opportunity in building a coalition with the nationalists in the country, especially nationalist right, to reach his goal of this presidential system. And all of a sudden, he started to say, there is no Kurdish problem in this country. We only have terrorism problem. And so he denied even the existence of a Kurdish problem in the country. And this is how PKK basically uh, responded with the, with the attacks. And now that the HDP politicians are under arrest, Erdogan basically is leaving no way for Kurds to do politics within, you know, the legitimate, within the legitimate ways of doing politics and doing something for their cause, for more rights for Kurdish people, the Kurdish population in the Southeast. So I really don't know how things will unfold the next days, weeks or months. There could be more attacks. How do you view the recent agreement between the European Union and Turkey regarding the refugee issue? 
Erdogan is so lucky. That's what I would say. Turkey has more than 2 million refugees living uh, in the country right now. And basically, Europe is now paying Turkey not to, you know, send any refugees to European countries. And there are negotiations. He's asking for more stuff like uh, no visa for Turks in, for traveling in Europe, etc. I don't know if they will, you know, meet these demands by Erdogan. But the thing is that he, despite his very authoritarian ways, uh, Europe has chosen to work with him. Because they also want to solve their own problems. They don't want the refugees to come. The refugees have uh, proven to be difficult to deal with in many places in Europe. And they just want them to stay in Turkey. So they don't really talk much about authoritarian ways of Erdogan. Which I believe is a bit of luck for, for him. We are on the air with Duke University Professor of Political Science, Bahar Leventoglu, here on the Alagos Radio and the Alagos Interview Series. Recently, Erdogan has made a series of controversial statements regarding Greece and the territorial status of the Aegean Sea, disputing, for instance, the validity of the Treaty of Lausanne, in which most Aegean islands ended up as a part of Greece. What do you make of these recent remarks by Erdogan? I really don't take it very seriously. I uh, read an article in, I think, the New York Times yesterday where I, I think it was an opinion piece where uh, the writer was concerned that Erdogan was saying uh, we didn't want to accept these borders that, uh, you know, we had in the Treaty of Lausanne. But I really, when he talks about that, I don't think he's talking about the Western borders at all. He, I think it's also about the independent, the possibility of an independent Kurdish state in the south. I think what he is trying to say is that if you, you know, push for an independent Kurdish state, then we could also do something to change our borders. I don't take it very seriously in the sense that, you know, Turkish army would full force go into there and do something. But I think he is trying to make the point that to Turkish borders that were you know, decided by the Treaty of Lausanne could change in the south. But I think he feels a threat. And he says we would do something if there was a threat to our borders. So I think it's a more of a defensive remark that he made. But I understand that people were concerned about him if, if he would you know, have an interventionist foreign policy or something like that. But I would see it as more of a defensive threat. Overall, and in closing, what do you believe Tayyip Erdogan's current vision is for Turkey and for his own legacy? So, for example, this arrest of Kurdish politicians, I don't think it has anything to do with the failed coup or PKK or anything. I think this is part of a long-term plan. As I said, Erdogan wants to have this supermajority in the parliament to be able to change the constitution to a presidential system and be the president. And we know that he, for example, finds American presidential system weak and he does not believe in separation of powers either. What he wants is a presidential system that he controls everything and everyone. I mean, you can say that he's controlling everything and everyone right now. Yes, he is, basically. Th th there was a sentence in the Guardian article yesterday after the Kurdish MPs were detained saying Turkey is heading towards a dictatorship. I'm saying it's not heading towards a dictatorship. It is a dictatorship right now. It's functioning as a dictatorship. But Erdogan is by law in a position that should be neutral and doesn't really have a lot of power. 
because it's not a presidential system. So he really wants a presidential system where he will be the president and he will control everything and everyone in the country. And he's smart in a way that he knows that someday one of his competitors, a guy, a woman from another party may get elected president. So to await that possibility, he's systematically trying to transform the country. He's, for example, started with the educational system by bringing in more uh, for example, religious classes uh, into the classroom. He's trying to make sure that the capital has been changing hands from secular to conservative businessmen through a big government contract. And of course, strictly controlling the media. So no opposition can really, you know, voice its, its opinion. So what I think is that he wants to make Turkey a country where his political views, his legacy will live even after his time. Well, Professor Levandoglu, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today here in the Galagos Radio and in the Galagos Interview Series and for sharing your thoughts and insights with us. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to talk to you about Turkish politics.